Okay, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 27. 1 Samuel chapter 27. I'm gonna read from chapter 27, the first seven verses, and then I'm gonna jump over to chapter 30 and read the first 10 verses, um, and then I'll explain kind of the in-between as we go. I'll narrate it to you. But first, let's pray. God, would you please... Speak through your word. That's why we're here. We're here to be humble, to listen to what you would say to us today. I pray that you would engage every part of our, every part of us, that you'd inspire this time, Lord, and that you would draw us closer. I pray that we would leave this place closer to you than when we came in and closer to each other, certainly. Lord, I pray that we would leave this place a little more whole, a little more healed than when we came in. Lord, I pray that you would um, just, just move mightily in this place. We're here for you, to gather around you, to focus on you. Speak, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, this is verse one through seven. Then David said in his heart, Literally in the Hebrew, David said to his heart, that's what that is. Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel and I will escape out of his hand. So, David arose and went over, he and the 600 men who were with him, and we will find out with their families as well, to Achish, the son of Moach, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. So it worked. Then David said to Achish, if I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day, Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore, Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now, if you would skip over to chapter 30. I'm gonna read the first 10 verses from chapter 30. Now, when when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, and let me put in there, came back to Ziklag, and I'll explain that, on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negeb and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They didn't kill anyone, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. This begs for your imagination to get involved here. What would that feel like? Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. What is, what is this appealing to? The Bible is appealing to your emotions and your imagination right now. Think of it, feel it, conjure up these feelings, especially you parents out there, you can get this. 
Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the the widow of, of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in their souls, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself and the Lord his God. And David said to Abathar, the, uh, or Abiathar, the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So, Abi- uh, so Abiathar brought the ephod to David. Uh, David used it as an oracle in the wilderness to, 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 to decipher what God was telling him to do. And David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? And he answered him, pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So David set out, and the 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook of Bezor, where those who were left, left behind stayed. But David pursued, he and 400 men, 200 stayed behind, who were too exhausted to cross the brook of Besor. And that's the word of the Lord today. Okay, um, we've been... We've been studying the, the life of David on Sunday mornings. And um, last week, if you remember, we studied kind of the end of Saul, the great arch nemesis of David, the very insecure, wayward soul with an impaired heart that his heart was so impaired that like a cancer, it ended up eating him alive, basically, to the end of his days, and unfortunately, hurting the people that were, all, that were all around him. Saul had gone wayward. He started out so great. He started out so good when we first were introduced to him. He was a humble man. The Spirit of God had come upon him. The Bible says that God gave him a new heart, but, but in chapter 15, Saul made a decision within his heart that really introduced a toxin or a disease, a spiritual disease into his heart of idolatry that he made his power in this kingdom above everything else and this value for his power in his kingdom basically ate him alive. He was threatened over David, not threatened enough by the Philistines. And because of this, the Phil- because he was out pursuing David with 3,000 men, David that had not posed really any threat to take the kingdom away, yet... The Philistines were amassing this army and they were able to take back some border lands and then puncture even further into Saul's territory to the point where he had to respond and it made him so distressed in his heart that finally he began to inquire of God again but God didn't answer Saul. So Saul hired, in disguise, Saul hired a witch, a, a necromancer, someone that is, can communicate with the dead, with spirits of the, of the spiritual world, and he calls up the spirit of Samuel, and Samuel is mad. The spirit of Samuel says, why in the world have you called me up? I was doing quite fine. <laughs> why would you call me up? And he said, well, because God won't answer me. And Samuel says, then why are you, if God's not gonna answer you, why are you asking me for help? And he tells him, look, I'll just tell you straight up what's going on here. It's what I told you before, back in chapter 15. <laughs> it's what I told you back at the battle of the Amalekites. God's tearing the kingdom away from you. Your heart has gone astray. God is no longer your king unless he can serve you and your wants. 
So he's taking the kingdom away from you. And by this time tomorrow, you'll be here with me, you and your sons. 24 hour notice, it's coming. Your, your days are coming. And sure enough, we read in chapter 31, at this great battle of the Philistines, Saul ends up dying defiantly, even deciding how he would be killed, in control to the very last, dying a very insecure, sad, tragic man. Well, we pick up, that was, a, that was a story wedged right in the middle of David's story, of this story, and we pick it up with David, and I just have to say, this is an account of David being off the rails too. You know that. David here ends up going into Philistine, he makes the decision to go to the Phil, into Philistine territory to make friends with the enemy. The enemy, uh, this king, gives him Ziklag, the city. He's the lord of the city. And from the city, if you were key, I just didn't want to print the whole thing on there for you. But if you were to read, you'd see that David starts leading these raids and killing people. Yeah, he starts slaughtering, not just women, children, because, and he slaughters them so, he doesn't, so they don't go back and tell the king. And he ends up lying to the king. The king says, hey, I've heard these crazy reports. And David denies them. David's just kind of going off the rails here. Another indicator about this is um, in, in the Hebrew, when it mentions um, Abigail, you know, the, the widow of, of Nabal, remember back in chapter 25. In the Hebrew, there's no mention that she's a widow. It actually says the wife of Nabal in, 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 um, in the Hebrew language. The translators, the ESV, the NIV, they translated it to widow. But in the Hebrew, it's very intentionally there. And most scholars say that this is like a, a, um, a foreshadow of David David's tendency to take wives that are not his especially foreshadowing into 2 Samuel, he will ultimately, you know, where David will go off the rails. He'll be in a place where he shouldn't be, just like here, in a place where he shouldn't be. He should be in battle, but he's on the roof and he sees Bathsheba bathing across the way. He inquires of her, he goes after her. He, they sleep together, they have this affair. She becomes pregnant and he ends up murdering her husband. It becomes this incredible scandal. There's the, David's kind of got this tendency and so I want to first draw attention to David's humanness here. We, again, we tend to idolize David because he's the man after God's own heart. And today we're going to find out exactly what that means. What does that mean exactly? Well, one, we got, we've got to get behind his folly here. We're going to talk about a few different things. We're going to talk about, one, the power of limbic lies, the power of the, 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 power of the heart, um, number two, we're going to talk about the opportunity that comes in life's crises. The opportunities that come in life's crises. Um, and finally, we're also going to see the di we're, we'll finally see the difference between David and Saul. One, the power of a lie told to your heart. Look at chapter twenty-seven. Um, look at chapter twenty-seven, verse one. Sorry, I lost my place. Look what David says. Then David said to his heart. Remember, we did a lot of work on what it means in the heart last week, um, how powerful the heart is. This is the place where all the decisions are made 
in terms of what kind of person you're going to be. David said to his heart, now I will perish one day by the hand of Saul. Therefore, there's nothing better for me to do that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Even though at this point, David had been preserved by God from Saul. Saul had been very close to David a few different times and yet God had preserved him. But yet, this shows that there's kind of some wear and tear here of wilderness living. He's getting, it's getting old. He's getting tired of it. And it's starting to wear his mind down and David starts to get starts to despair and go into hopelessness. So he says to his heart, I'm gonna die out here. He stops trusting that God is gonna protect him and because of this, he ends up making this incredible decision, this, this fateful decision to leave the territory of Israel and to go into the, into the, the, hand of, or into the land of the Philistines. Um, the last time David heard from God in terms of what territory he should be in, God spoke to him through a priest saying, or through a prophet rather, saying, you need to be in the land of Judah. You need to be in Israel. Here, David makes this decision on his own because of this fear that's entered into his heart and into his mind. Fear is one of the biggest impacts to our heart. Distrust, it makes us question, doubt, all of those types of things, makes us question, and soon, after a while, if you've been in the wilderness for any length of time, you know that one of the things about trials in a wilderness is that it slowly ebbs away at you. Maybe you start your trial with lots of faith, thinking, I'll get through this, but then weeks, months, or years go by, and it's the same thing, the same pain, or maybe it's getting worse, and sure, you're sustained, but barely so. God is working it, but you're just tired of the wilderness living. You know, have you ever been in that place where, sure, you're, you've got a paycheck that's paying the bills, but that's it. That's all it is. Sure, you're grateful, but man, it'd be nice to be not so tight. It'd be nice to have a little bit of cushion, to relax a little bit. David is living with his, with, with his wives and then his men's wives and their children in the wilderness, sleeping in caves. Not the greatest place to raise a family, right? So David's getting, t- and he's being hunted constantly. And sure, he's getting away and God is protecting him, but how much longer can I do this, David must be thinking. How much more do I have this in me? And so David makes a decision. I'm gonna go into the Philistines and therefore I won't be, pursued and that part works Saul does hear that he's in this land of the Philistines and Saul says okay I'm not going to pursue him but David trades one amount of trouble for others Um, gosh I see this all the time in people that think moving somewhere will make will change things for them if I go to another church or if I go to another city or if I get a better job or if I get another husband or wife or if I do this or do that, the problem is, like David is finding out, we've gotta take ourselves wherever we go. <laughs> That's our big problem. We gotta look in the mirror every day. So I told one person, they're like, I'm gonna go you know, find the perfect church and I tell them, well, when you find it, leave because you're gonna screw it all up. You're gonna ruin it. David makes this huge decision based on fear that I'm sure made a lot of sense to him at the time. And then what made it, what made it deceptive is that it did, quote unquote, work. It accomplished its objective. Um, I was listening to a, um, Pastor Ted Roberts down in 
uh, Gresham, Oregon, talk about something called, he called limbic lies. And that is a lie that's implanted in your limbic system, that is the, the fight or flight portion of your brain, that makes you go into fight or flight, that makes you either attack or run. And he was saying that this can really, um, this can really dominate how you live your life. In his example, he gave a, a real visceral example. When he was growing up, his mom was seeing several different men. She was, um, she was in and out of marriages and relationships, and usually she was being with abusive men. And one day when he was 13, he heard the normal beatings begin in his room. His dad, uh, his stepdad at the time, typically on a regular basis would beat the snot out of his mom. But this time, as Ted Roberts was in his room, he heard that it was going further than usual. He heard his stepdad drag his mom into the restroom and fill up the bathtub, and he was going to drown her. He was going to shove her face under and drown her. And so Ted Roberts, this 13-year-old version of it, walked in and pulled the guy off of his mom, and the guy spun around and punched this 13-year-old in the face as hard as he could. Ted Roberts flew back and hit the ground. And this, you know, he's like 140, 150-pound skinny little 13-year-old. And this 200-pound man looms over him and says to him, and this was the biggest thing, loomed over him and said, if you attempt to give up or to get up, I will kill you. And he said it felt so helpless, he felt so overpowered in that moment, and he vowed in his heart, he, in the Hebrew, he spoke to his heart, I will never let another man tower over me again, ever. And he went on to say that this, unbeknownst to him, this moment where this, this truth was like a seed was poked into his heart, into his, into his will, that drove the decisions for the rest of his life. He became the captain of the football team. And he said later, not because he was more athletic than everybody else, not because he was better than everybody else, but because he was driven by no one will ever stop me again. I will never let anyone overpower me again. I'll be the toughest, the strongest, the most powerful person that I possibly can. So he succeeded uh, his goals were achieved, which kind of masked the whole thing, masked the problem, because look, there's, I have results. Later, he joined the Marines, and he joined a special unit of the Marines um, that, that flew fighter, fighter, fighter uh, jets, a Marine unit that, that were aviators. I didn't even know there was such a thing, but he was. And one day, they were flying, doing a dogfight, and one of his friends said, I'm going to fly under that bridge. And he, so this guy flew under the bridge. And then other pilots were like, I'm going to fly under that bridge. I can do that, and I can do it faster. And Ted Roberts said, I'm going to fly under that bridge inverted. So he turns his jet upside down and flies under the bridge that way. And, late, and he took enormous amounts of risks Later to discover, it all went back, the, the, he says the Holy Spirit showed him that moment where it all went back to that man towering over him saying, if you try to get up, I will kill you. And for him, he said, he spoke to his heart, I will never let that happen to me again. 
And it drove him to alcoholism. It drove him to almost losing his family. It drove him to pornography. It drove him to all sorts of ways to escape and alleviate this pain, but also this driven sense of achievement. The power of what we say to our hearts. Here, David, because of this moment where he says to his heart, he, goes, he stops trusting God. He takes matters into his own hands. He starts to connive and manipulate and strive and make things happen to survive, to make things happen on his own. And because of this, he ends up going to the Philistines. And by the way, the Philistines, you know the battle that we read about where Saul dies in this battle? The Philistines amassed this army. You know who showed up to the Philistine army to, to sign up? David and his 600 men. David went to the king of the Philistines and said, this is what I didn't put in there. You can read it yourself. He said, let me fight against Israel, against my own people. And the king was all too happy to oblige at first, but it was his generals that came to the king and said, are you nuts? Are you crazy? This is the guy, you know, that hit song? You know, Saul has killed his thousands. David has killed his tens of thousands. That's him. And you're gonna let him fight for us? And so the king goes to David and says, look, I'm cool with it, but my generals aren't. I think you're trustworthy, but he hasn't been. David's been lying to this king the whole time. This king's like, I think you're trustworthy, but my generals won't let you fight. And David leaves, and it says that he left disappointed. He left disappointed that he couldn't fight. Where's David's heart at this moment? There's a lot of people that think that David was gonna turn in the middle of the battle, and, but there's, it's just really all, it's really all assumption. And there's no... Uh, textual proof that his motive was that. But we do know that while David was signing up to fight with the Philistines, with the enemy, a raid of Amalekites, people that David had been raiding, they came and hit David's city. And because of this, his wives were gone. The, The men's wives and children were gone. All goes back to this moment in verse one of chapter 27, where David says to his heart, I'm gonna perish by Saul, I should leave. I should stop trusting God. I should stop doing what God has told me to do and stay in this really difficult spot. I should stop doing this and I should get out. And he makes this huge decision. Um, I um, I was working with this young lady who her, her parents asked me to help her with her grades. Her grades were horrible. And her parents um, sensed that it was not just an academic problem, but it was a spiritual problem. So they said, would you sit with her and help her and, and work through this? And what I came to find out when I was working with this young woman who was just incredibly smart, just a brilliant young person, she kept saying over and over her self-talk, what was pouring out of her heart was this, I'm stupid. I'm an idiot. I can't get those things. I'll never do that. Oh, I can't do that. And so do you know what happened? Because she said, I'm stupid. Guess what would happen? She wouldn't put much effort into her homework, which got her bad grades, which confirmed the lie that she's stupid, which made her get worse grades, which confirmed the lie which made her get worse grades. So she had this built-in proof of her own statement. So by the time I met up with her, it was a very powerful lie, a very powerful lie, because she would just say, well, look, isn't that why you're here? 
You're here to help me with my grace. Look how bad they are. I am stupid. I've got proof on paper. And so the, the key for me wasn't just to um, help her do her homework. The key was to show her how smart she was. When, so when she would do something good, I would make a big deal out of it. When her grades would start going up, I would say, look at you. Man, you're so smart. Or when she would say something that I didn't catch, I would say, wow, I didn't even catch that one. Good point. And what, see what I was trying to do? I was appealing to her heart. I was trying to get in there to change that lie and change that momentum to where she started getting good grades and I started saying, look, you're smart. No, no, I'm not. Let's keep working on it. Better grade, not perfect, but better. Well, it could have been better, but it's better than what it was. Look. And then eventually, well, maybe I am smart. And then she started getting really good grades. Well, I can do a lot. And eventually, she, start, she was a straight-A student and is now, now um, has the only person in her family to have a degree, married with children. Um, she's, she's really doing great, but, her, but all that came from her, the place of her heart, the power of our hearts. Uh, Proverbs, again, above all things, tend to your heart. What are you believing about yourself? What do you say about yourself? What have you decided to believe about yourself? It has such power, and a lot of times people say to me, how did I get to this place, Mike? How did I get here? Well, one decision at a time, but that led from a belief. Decisions come from beliefs. Everything you're doing, everything you are, everything you've become starts with a belief system in your heart. So that's the first thing. David goes through all of this trouble because of a belief system in his heart. And I want to put that to you now. I want to have a, a Selah moment. And I want you to um, have an opportunity to scan what are, what are some things that are true and what are some things that are not true that you've decided to believe. Just take a moment to yourself. You don't have to say them out loud. Ask God, search me and know me, O God. What ground have I given up? And one way to ask that question is to start with something you don't like about your life, some trouble, and work your way backwards. Where did that start? David here, it started with his heart, and then he went to the Philistines and lost his family. <laughs> it started with something. Where did it start for you? And what can we do about that? Selah. This led to all David's sin and the hurt that caused him and his families and the men. Secondly, please notice in both Saul and David, both, both Saul and David were brought to God by a crisis. Both Saul and David were brought to God by a crisis. Saul saw an army threatening his kingdom and he inquired of God. <gasps> Trembled in his heart, right? David returned to Ziklag and saw that it had been burned and raided and his men, they blamed him and they were gonna kill him. <laughs> they, were gonna, they were blaming David's leadership and partially rightfully so and they were gonna 
they were going to kill David. And finally, they began inquiring of the Lord. This time where David inquires of the Lord, this is the only time in this entire Philistine episode that David finally inquires of the Lord. You won't find it again. So from chapter 27 onward, it's like David comes back. He begins to strengthen himself in the Lord. Both Saul and David were brought to God by crisis. Um, The the, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous calls this the essential time of hitting bottom. Yeah, you, you've heard of that. We all need, they would say, they, they would, in their doctrine or their material, they would say that all, everybody that wants to recover from any addiction or any malady or any behavior, everybody needs to have a hit bottom moment. What is a hit bottom moment? Anybody have any ideas? There's some essential ingredients that make it a true hit bottom moment. You lose faith in yourself. Yes. Yep, absolutely, Hal. Why do you lose faith in yourself? Anybody want to give a crack at that? Yeah, you've lost control. You've tried everything, and there's nothing left to do. You're out of resources, right? A lot of times, we try to solve problems on our own, and maybe we go a few rounds with some stubborn things to finally, it comes to a point where we realize, okay, I'm done, I don't have the prowess that I thought I had. I don't have the self-discipline that I thought I had. I don't have the character that I thought I had. I cannot do this on my own. Absolutely. You lose control. You're helpless. You're at the mercy of something. For Saul, it was this army. He had calculated this army, and it was their territory. They had gotten into a certain point, to the point where he's, Saul's playing a chess game in his head, and he realizes there's a check, there's, I'm, I'm, made it in four, I'm made it in two. And there's nothing, I can, there's no way around this. And it brings him to his knees. He starts to call on, on God. For David, he comes back, and his, this city is burned. Uh, by the way, the, the Amalekites here that took David's wives and their, his men's wives and families, um, it says that they left them alive. It's not an act of kindness. Uh, back then, if, if uh, a raiding band kept people alive, it was, to put them into, it was to make money off of them. It was to put them into the slave trade. That's no doubt what they were doing. So, I mean, can you imagine, you parents out there, even if you're not a parent, imagine you come home and your kids are gone and it's worse than death. It's that they're gonna, they're gonna lose their lives to abject slavery and you might not ever see them again. They're gonna be abused, not just once, but repeatedly over and over again and you won't see them anymore. I mean, it's just horrible. There's nothing you can do and David is faced with this and not only that, there's an internal problem. His men that have been loyal to him this whole time are now turning against him. They're wanting to stone him, to kill him. They're realizing, man, I trusted you with my family. And that did, you've betrayed us all. We put everything into following you, David. We even left Israel, our homeland, to follow you. We brought our families along thinking that you were going to protect them and they're gone. Um, When one hits bottom, there's one of two ways that someone can go. What's the way that Saul went? 
We talked about this last week. What were some of the characteristics we saw in Saul when he hit bottom? Someone say something? I thought I heard. He grasped tighter. He tried to manipulate. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. He tried to um, squirm out of it. And yet, David, what does David do? When he strengthens himself in the Lord, he finally comes back to inquire of God. And what does he say to God? Basically, he says, what should I do? It's a question of, I'll do what you tell me. I'll surrender. Think of the, think of, so, and here's what I'm, here's what I want to tell you. This is, this is, I think this is the difference between him and Saul. If you were to catalog or just categorize Saul's sins and David's sins, David's are much worse by a landslide. Really, if you were just to go through and count them out and weigh them out, Saul versus David's sins. David's sins are, are much more horrible, and yet David is a man after God's own heart. I think it's because of this ability that David has. This is not the first time you'll see David do it. This ability that David has to open his hand and say, thy will be done. What do you want me to do? Saul was not able to do that. Saul was constantly grasping constantly manipulating, constantly trying to control events and play the chess game in his mind and spin the plates and keep everything going and keep the world in orbit. He was constantly anxious, um, insecure, paranoid. David, even when he messes up and does some really horrible things, when David does come back and strengthen himself in the Lord, one of the things that he does repeatedly is just say, okay, uh, you know, let me... Uh, let me show you two other times. Um, when David is confronted by Nathan over his sin, David says, I've sinned before God. There's no control. There's no inquire of the Lord for me. Remember that's what Saul said. Talk to God for me on my behalf and see if we can. David just said, I've sinned. And Nathan says, and God has forgiven your sin, but the child that you've conceived through Bathsheba is going to die. You remember with that? So what did David do? David prayed and fasted for the child to live. The child gets sick. David's praying and fasting and then the child dies. And to, to the shock of his servants, David gets up, shaves, and asks for food and starts to eat. And they say to David, What's going on here? Your child just died, the one you've been praying for. And David said, what can I do? God's, made his, God's given me his answer. In other words, God is God and I am not. There's nothing left to do except to surrender. This is an enormous spiritual ability that David has. I would be, I'd be willing to argue that this is the difference between him and Saul. Not so much their behaviors necessarily, but the posture of their hearts. Think further, when David's son, because of his own parental issues, because of David's own shadow side and his sin, David's son Absalom tries to take the throne. And you remember David's response? Maybe this is God's way of getting me out. That's what he said. Maybe this is God's way of removing me. 
enormous amounts of surrender, just an enormous amount of surrender. And you start seeing that here in our story. David comes, he's faced with his own mistakes, his own problems. He strengthens himself in the Lord. And finally he says, I just give up. What do you want me to do? Now, giving up didn't mean despair. It's a willingness. What do you want me to do? What do you want? I'm willing to do nothing. I'm willing to do something. You know, David doesn't go off and, you know, binge on Netflix or something. And that's surrender. We were talking about that this morning, the, the Christian buzz phrase, or what are you doing with your life? And people say, I'm just waiting on the Lord. <laughs> and what that means is they're watching Netflix or they're, you know, they're having idle time or whatever. But in the Bible, waiting on the Lord's a very intentional thing. It's, a, it's never in the passive tense. It's always in an active tense. I'm waiting on God. I'm focused on him. What do you want me to do? I'm ready. I'm ready to do what you want me to do. And that's what you see in David here. He inquires of the Lord, should I go or should I not? And God tells him to go. And because of this, they're able to go and recover everything. If you kept reading the story, David takes his men. Some, they've already come from the battlefront where this Philistine army is happening. And by the way, man, can you imagine if David was allowed, what would have happened if David was allowed to fight in that battle? Not only would he have lost his family, but he might have had a hand in killing Saul. That might have been, I mean, or, or I mean, who knows? I mean, just crazy what might have happened if he was allowed. But they, he was not allowed. Providentially, I think he was protected from this scandal. He gets out of there and he goes back and he has this crisis moment. My leadership and my um, decisions here have led to a lot of innocent people getting hurt. And David doesn't dwell on it. He strengthens himself in the Lord. He, he, he inquires of God. And they're already exhausted. They came from the Philistine battle back to Ziklag, probably about 60 miles. They rode their horses 60 miles. And now they've got to go pursue even more to get this Amalekite band. That's why 200 of them were too exhausted. They couldn't cross the river. So David leaves them behind. So it was still hard to follow what God was telling him to do. Was, it, wasn't, it didn't just magically come to him. He still had to put in effort. He had to work. He had to fight exhaustion. Maybe he skipped a few meals. But what was going on was, God has guaranteed me victory. God has guaranteed me victory. And look how gracious he becomes. He doesn't shame the guys that can't go on, even though the other men want to shame them. They bring back spoils at the end of this raid. And some of the men say, don't give it to those guys because they wussed out. And David says, no, it's about grace. <laughs> None of us should be here. None of us should be getting this goodness. It's all about grace. David's starting to get it. He's understanding. God gave me the strength. He gave me the promise and we pressed forward because of this hope that we have and God came through. But it all came from this inner posture of surrender, of being open. And this is the difference. We also, of course, we see this in the greater, of, the greater than David. We see this in Jesus several times. Jesus walked around with this uncanny sense of surrender to God. One thing that's a surprise to us Western readers of the life of Jesus, I, well, if you're, a, if you're a newbie to reading the Gospels, especially from the Western world, we tend to think of Jesus as this kind of cowboy figure that's out there moving unilaterally, doing what he decides to do. 
If he decides to heal people, he can. If he decides to walk on water, he can. If he decides to do this, he's kind of this, this, this lone ranger, you know, I don't need anybody, but everybody needs me type of John Wayne type of character. But then we get into the book of John and we see these incredible things going on in, coming out of Jesus' mouth. And namely, I don't do anything apart from my father. I, don't do, I only do the things that my father tells me to do. I only do the things that I see my father doing. And then he teaches his disciples to pray by saying, our father who is in heaven, holy is your name, may your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then in this, in the, even to his death, he lived a life of surrender and even in his death, he said, not my will. What, what is the part of the human that's talking about will and volition? It's the heart. Not my will, but yours be done. This incre- I would be willing to pose to you that surrender to God and trust is what saved the world. Even when it comes to the advent, think of it. God did not come into this world, incarnate himself into this world as a mighty, sovereign, in-control ruler. He came as a helpless baby at the mercy of people around him. That's the irony and incredible part of Christmas. It's strength through weakness. It's redemption through something, through the most innocent, non-threatening type of person that you can imagine. An infant, completely at the mercy and the control of other people. And things were not great. He was not born in a sanitary hospital with latex gloves and and warm lights and clean running water. He was born in a cave in the dark amongst animal droppings with dirty hands. He was touched with dirty hands. It was cold. It was scary. There was no room for them. Right from the beginning of this redemption story, you see this God who incarnates himself and in his sovereignty, the very thing that makes him sovereign is that he sovereignly puts himself at the mercy of others. God's strength is shown in giving up his strength. Not many years, uh, uh, actually right away, he's hunted. By the time he's two, he's got to run. He's got to flee to Egypt. Otherwise, he would be killed by Herod and his henchmen. He grows up in subjugation under the Roman government. Not in control. I mean, you know, he's the sovereign God, of course, but think of this. He's, he puts himself under a, an oppressive, corrupt regime. Up to his death, he's before Pilate. And like a lamb silent before his, the shears, he, he's just silent there. Remember what Pilate said? Don't you know that I have the power? What's this? What is... What is Pilate saying? He's saying a belief system, a philosophy that he believes about himself, a heart issue. Don't you know that I have the power to either kill you or set you free? And what's Jesus' belief system? He says, you would have no power unless the Lord gave it to you. He submits himself. So by submitting myself to you, corrupt Pilate, I'm submitting myself to my pure heavenly father. I'm trusting this. I trust it. 
So what marks the followers of Jesus? What marks his followers? Surrender. Is that what marks our life? Or is your life marked by contention, control, being more powerful than the next person, outwitting somebody, outthinking somebody, showing how smart you are, trying to validate your existence to the universe through your achievements and your accomplishments? Or do you have an inner surrender? Are you still grasping? I won't be happy until I'm doing this again, until I'm this, until I'm that. Or are you saying, God, the love of God. I was reading something, um, I wanna share this quote with you from one of my favorite authors, Henry Nouwen. Henry Nouwen, uh, for those of you that don't know who Henry Nouwen was, he's with the Lord now. He was a Christian scholar and academic. He um, had published several best-selling books that were really just making a powerful impact on Christianity. He, um, I think he was a priest, I think he was Catholic, and he um, was just this profound and prolific writer and he gave it all up. He gave it up and he went to work in a convalescent home for people who, had, who were um, experiencing schizophrenia and uh, they were, um, had mental illness. And he says that it was the best thing for him because all of a sudden, no one knew who he was. He was ministering to people where no one knew who he was. No one had read any of his books. No one cared <laughs> who he was. And he said, it forced me to realize that I'm loved because God loves me, not because, of what, not because of what I have accomplished. It purified him from all of his accomplishments. And here he says this in his book. This is his book about leadership. He says, the greatest thing that, the future, that future leaders need for the future generation, it, he says, is not the books, is not the study, is not the training. Those things are good, but the greatest thing that future leaders need is to know the love of God. And then he says this, he says, this sounds very simple and maybe even trite, but very few people know that they are loved without conditions and without limits. Very few people know that they are loved without conditions and without limits. He goes on to say, this unconditional and unlimited love is what the evangelist John calls God's first love. Let us love, he says, because God loved us first. He's pointing out the order there. You are loved because, you, you are lovable because you're loved by God, not because of what you can accomplish. And he goes on to talk about how, how futile other loves are. He calls it a secondary love when it's on your accomplishments or things like that because your accomplishments all of a sudden can go away. Thanksgiving, I was with two, I got to spend Thanksgiving with two people who are retired, not Christians, and I asked them, what's retirement like for you? And they said, this one lady, in a moment of unexpected honesty, she looked at me and she said, I'm irrelevant. I said, what do you mean? Because it shocked me. 
Because we were talking about, oh, you know, at first it was like, so how's retirement? They're like, oh, we piddle around the garden, we get to go, and all of a sudden she just comes in and she goes, I'm redundant and I'm irrelevant. And I, and I kind of was shocked by her just moment of, can, of, of being so candid. And I said, what do you mean by that? And she said, I spent my life learning and to be an expert at a, at a trade. And all of a sudden, all of that information is, does me no good and it's completely irrelevant. She used to build airplanes for Boeing. And she said, now it doesn't matter how, what I know. No one cares about my degrees. And, she, and, she, and then she said, quote, she said, I wonder, who am I anyway? Or she said, now who am I? Now who, who am I? And my heart just broke for this dear woman because, and I thought about Henry Nouwen who's saying the problem with putting our identity on these secondary loves is that they can be taken. They'll go away. Or you'll go somewhere where no one knows you. Or there's always something more to accomplish. He says, rather than the, the, the primary love of knowing I'm loved because God loved me first, nothing can take that away. Nothing. And he said nothing got that through to him. Even after all of his degrees and all of his academic and all of his studying, nothing got that through to him more than working with people who just didn't care. <laughs> who didn't care anymore. Do you know in your heart, do you know in your heart, and to what degree do you know in your heart that you are loved without conditions or limits? Does Mike know that he's loved, whether I'm a pastor or not? Am I okay with that? Uh, I was, I was um, working with a, a, a woman who had been found guilty of abusing her children. And they were going to put a marking on her. The state was going to put a mark on her file, if you would, that would ban her from working with children ever again. And this was the, and she, you know, she claimed her innocence and all of this, and this was her, and I remember I sat, I went to coffee with her, and she was just so broken, and she said, hey, Mike, this is what I do. I, I work with children. God has given me the gift to work with children. I, this is who I am. I work with children. She goes, imagine if someone told you you could be a pastor anymore. And I just thought that to myself. Imagine what it would be like if, if you couldn't be a pastor anymore, and I thought, man, I won't be a pastor in heaven. In heaven, I will not be Pastor Mike. I will be a dearly loved child of God. All those other things will be stripped away from me. All other titles, I'll throw, I'll cast my crowns down and my degrees and all of those, those types of things. This gets to why are we doing what we're doing? Do you know that you're loved without conditions or limits? Or are in, and, this will dis, and this will determine if you are a Saul or if you are a David. See, you can have King David and King Saul both kinging, doing the same things externally, but for very different reasons internally. You see, this is what the Bible's saying. In fact, Saul did some good things as king. 
David really screwed some things up as king. And yet, David's God's man because of the gas that was in his tank, the posture of his heart. You might have two students, both pursuing degrees, and yet one is doing it to prove their existence. I'm proving that I'm smart. I'm proving that I, my, that what I'm made of. What's that going to cause you to do? Oh my gosh, you're going to lose sleep. You're going to be an unhealthy person. This is called idolatry. Where the other person is pursuing that same degree from a place of being loved, from a place of rest, from those places. And here's what, where it gets tricky. We get results. How am I going to get up in the morning and get things done if it's not for this motive of proving myself? Some, for some of us, that's all we've ever done. That's how we've gotten thus far. We've motivated ourselves by proving we can do it. What's going to get me out of bed in the morning now if that's not my identity? How am I going to go to work? How am I going to get my degree? Love. See, so here's what the Bible is saying. The Bible is saying that Christianity gives you an entirely new operating system. You might still do the things, but the quality of which you're doing those things are completely different. You get a whole other updated operating system, a whole other motive and reason and worldview that's coming out of your heart. Instead of saying, I am defined by what I do, you're saying, I do because of how I'm defined. I'm an image of God. I worship because this is who I am. Yeah, I work hard as an act of worship as unto the Lord rather than I am trying to show that I'm there. I can be comfortable in my own skin again. And then there's always something more. This is the difference between Saul and David and Jesus, who by and large did not live a successful life. Twelve followers, and at the end of it all, they all ran. His most faithful disciples that put us all to shame were his women disciples who followed him right to his death. Bravery, courage. But all the men, they they left except for John. Hmm. It seems so counterintuitive. Can we do this? I mean, I hope you're starting to see how hard. Can you surrender? What are the things that you're doing this with? I promise all of you have it me included, what are the things that we're doing this with? Can we this morning say, what would you have me do? Or in the words of Jesus, not my will but yours be done. What's your golden calf? What's defining you? Can you put it on the altar today? Lord, I pray that you would give us the strength and the grace. Lord, what motivated you to give up your power was us, your love for us, your love for me. You said, I will give up my power for Mike because I love him. And because of that, you were exalted. Lord, now can we choose to give up our coping mechanisms, the way we escape, the things that we worship, the way we prove ourselves, the, trying to demand the cosmos to acknowledge us, 
to give us permission to exist. Lord, can we give all of that striving and manipulating and anxiousness and paranoia up this Christmas and fight against the the busy, phonetic energy of the Christmas season here and may it be a reminder for us to enter into rest, the rest of truly being loved. Can we believe, can we dare to believe that we are loved by you without condition? With a never ending, never stopping, unconditional, always and forever love. even in the midst of our mistakes like David. Lord, he had untethered his identity from his successes or failures and he just put it right on you, consistently the same. Oh God, grant it to be so. Start with me. Start with me. In Jesus' name, amen.